Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Please help us welcome Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. In her personal bio, she writes that she sees the issue of suicide prevention and mental health promotion from a host of perspectives. Clinical psychologist, mental health advocate, faculty member, researcher, and suicide loss survivor. Sally, welcome to the Psych Central Show. I'm so excited to be here, guys. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a real honor. Sally, let's jump right out of the gate. When you say a host of perspectives and you list all of those things, why do you think that's unique? I don't necessarily think it's unique, but I do think that there are many mental health professionals who do not talk about their own personal experiences with suicide, whether that's suicide loss, suicide attempts, or suicidal thoughts and feelings. And so there's a, a growing number of us who you know, wear professional hats and have letters after our names who are starting to talk about, you know what, this affects us too on a personal level. I completely agree. And I, I think it's interesting. A decade ago, when I started my career, people gave me pushback and they're like, you know, Gabe, you're, you're not a doctor. You're not a researcher. You're not a college professor. You, you have no letters after your name, like you said. Why should we hire you to speak on the topic of you know mental illness or suicide prevention? And I said, you know, you're right. And if you want the definition of these things, you, you shouldn't hire me. You, you should hire a doctor or a lecturer or a researcher. But if you want to know what it's like to live with bipolar disorder, if you want to know what it's like to be suicidal, that's where I come in. So it's interesting to see a decade later that, you know, I maybe I should have gone to college. I, I should have gotten a doctorate. It's, it's starting to mingle more. So <laughs> kudos to you for being willing to talk about both the professional experience and the personal experience. I think it's very helpful for people to hear. Yeah, I actually think in the earlier years, we were, it was trained out of us. It was trained that we needed to have professional boundaries and you don't talk about your personal experiences because that would somehow muddy up the waters in your training or in your treatment, et cetera. Um, and even when we, when we would attend professional conferences, you had to choose one box, like either you were a clinician or you were, you know, a suicide loss survivor. You couldn't have both identities. And so the, the professional affiliations actually did have us choose one category. And that really ended up creating a bunch of silos, which we are now uh, trying to tear down. Now, back in 2005, you started a foundation called the Carson J. Spencer Foundation. Is that correct? That is correct. My brother was Carson. Uh, he was my younger brother who died December 7, 2004. So, so launching that foundation in his name was absolutely in the midst of an acute grief reaction that my family and his, his friends were having at the time. But it sounds like even in the midst of the it, – it's been around now for 13 years, so it was a good thing, Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I have to give the founders credit in that they were quite visionary in the sense that, you know, from the from the outset, they knew they didn't want to duplicate the good work of other people. And so together we looked strategically at places where there were big holes and where bold, new, innovative strategies would help fill the gaps, if you will. Unfortunately, running a nonprofit is hard. And last year, 2017, I had to leave the foundation in March and then it closed its doors in the summer of 2017. So I'm currently doing 
similar work as to what the foundation was doing for those past 13 and a half years, just on my own with a number of other contracted support. So the mission lives on, but the organization sadly no longer lives on. As somebody who works in fundraising in my quote day job, I know that's very disappointing to all of my listeners to not realize that I'm the <laughs> only podcaster making millions of dollars. Right. <laughs> we know that, you know, foundations are, you know, they're, they're, they're hard and they're unwieldy and they need board members, but missions sometimes are almost better because they can be more agile and... And I, I hate to say it, but sometimes the mission can accomplish more than the bureaucracy that sometimes surrounds missions. But one of the things that I want to talk about in the Carson J. Spencer Foundation was something called social enterprises. And that was very interesting to me. Um, first, can you explain to our listeners what a social enterprise is? Sure. You know, I had never heard of it before. And, and then I went back and got a master's in nonprofit management to figure out how to run a nonprofit. And someone said, have you ever heard of this thing called social enterprise? I said, I have no idea what that is. And what they said was it brings together the best of nonprofit with uh, and kind of community good, working in the community good with the best of for profit or the real efficiency of a, of a business model. I said, that sounds really interesting. Um, and so I, I launched into that and I found like, oh my gosh, that's what I am. I had no idea. So you look at the heart of a charity model, the heart of a nonprofit model, the, the mindset is really about how do we contribute to the common good. But often um, it's very hard in my own case to sustain a, a nonprofit, to sustain a charity without a mindset of a business. Um, sometimes socially responsible businesses are also contributing to the common good, but they choose their causes often with an idea around what will help them in their marketing, what's aligned with their brand, what will kind of increase the value of their product or sales if they align with a certain cause. So they're limited in, in what kind of causes they can choose. A social enterprise actually is a business model in that some kind of product or service is put to market to raise funds by the value that it has in the marketplace. But there is something about that service or good that also contributes to the common good. So you're not just raising money to donate somewhere. There's something about the product or service that's also contributing to the common good. And I think that's a really cool concept and something that is sorely needed on both sides, on both sectors. The nonprofit needs to become more agile and more business-minded, and a lot of companies uh, will also do well to be more community-oriented. Thank you so much for that explanation, and you've also explained why they were valuable, which was going to be my next question. So my, my question after that is, can you give us an example of, you know, in, in 13 and a half years, you must have funded a lot of projects. What were some of the projects that you funded, and, and how did they turn out? How are they helping our community? Well, the very specific program that we had at the time was called The Fire Within, and it was a high school program that taught our youth the power of entrepreneurship, which for the most part, they absolutely ate up. That was our ticket in the door. A lot of students today want to do well and they want to be independent. And so this idea of entrepreneurship was something that was very appealing to them. And then we gave them the skills, the tools, and some startup resources to launch a company. And something about the company had to address mental health promotion, suicide prevention, resilience, peer support, something in the spectrum of, of how do we prevent the tragedy of suicide. So some of our groups did some, some really amazing things. They, well, they always would start off with a needs and strengths assessment of their high school. So they would go out and they would do surveys of the students about what they thought was 
contributing to despair or mental unwellness. Uh, they would do focus groups, both from a solution standpoint on what would help from the mental health or suicide prevention, as well as market research on what the students would be interested in purchasing or what kind of services they would need. So uh, over the course of the years that we were running this program, we literally had hundreds of schools standing up these programs, and we would have business plan competitions where they would get uh, varying levels of seed funding based on the quality of their business plan, and then they would bring their services and products to a marketplace and showcase them off to various business leaders. It was totally fun. So some examples were that uh, we had one class that found that the students really could have, could benefit from learning how to listen better to one another. So listening skills was really the service, really was the skill thing that they were trying to teach their fellow classmates. The product that they were selling was a set of earbuds. Get it? Listening, earbuds. And within the packaging of the earbuds, they talked about four or five different skills that you could learn to be better listeners to your peers. Clever. So they were communicating. That very skills. Yes. Isn't that so, so things yeah. like that? And we, we had some. Um, so for another example, uh, we had a business class at a certain high school and they knew that all the students would wear lanyards. So in their market research, they learned that the lanyards that the students liked were of a certain width, a certain color, and everybody kept their IDs on them. This was something that most students would purchase. So it was a very common used product that they then branded with a campaign where students would pledge to look out for one another. And within that pledging process, they learned about the Suicide Prevention Lifeline and a number of other resources. But the main part was that they wanted the students to say, I got your back. And they did that through a pledge uh, around this campaign. Well, the lanyards were just something that the high school students would purchase. They were also something that student conferences would purchase. So then they started selling, you know, hundreds to thousands of these lanyards at conferences like uh, DECA or Future Business Leaders of America, conferences that had thousands of students attending where mental health promotion and suicide prevention were not part of the conversation until all the students at the conference were wearing these lanyards and the students got stage time to talk about the importance of the lanyards, the importance of the campaign and the suicide prevention lifeline resources. That's Pretty ingenious. Yeah. Yeah. So things like that. That's that awesome. incredible. Thank you. Speaking of, of the different endeavors, when I was looking over your your bio and everything, I saw man therapy. And <laughs> yeah, I, we were curious about I had that. I had to click on that just out of curiosity. And it's an amusing, whimsical kind of thing there, but it's very cool too. And we should encourage our listeners to go there. It's mantherapy.org. Yeah. So yeah. check it out, of course, after the show. But can you talk a little bit about that initiative? I, I'm not sure how involved you are, but it, it's definitely something that that you seem to be behind. Can you can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So I just want to go back to uh, the kind of introductory comments of kind of bold gap filling things. So the first thing we talked about with the youth is how do we help empower youth to be the the leaders and promote upstream resilience, coping, and knowledge of resources. That's one gap-filling thing uh, we were trying to do. The second one, man therapy, um, was another important gap to be filled. When we started looking at the data, and this, again, is 2005, 2006, um, not a lot of people are talking about this. Um, it was very clear to us 
as soon as we started, you know, mucking around in the data, that the majority of people who die by suicide are just like my brother, a white man in the, in the working years. And that was a big aha moment, not just for us, but all the public health people who are kind of pouring over this national trend. Um, and, and very few people were focusing in on what to do about all these men who were falling through the cracks. They were not responding to traditional messages about if you're depressed, seek help. Many of them, we call them double jeopardy men. Many of them uh, double jeopardy because they have a number of risk factors for suicide and they are also least likely to reach out for help on their own. Most of them don't see their distress through a lens of a mental health problem like depression or anxiety. They see their despair and feeling overwhelmed by a lens of my world is really difficult. So they don't understand, they don't connect the dots between what they're experiencing and their mental health. So man therapy was born out of asking these guys, how do we reach you? Where do we find you? What do you need? How can we help you? And it's a whole a whole other Oprah for me to go into all of the things that they told us, which was significant. But one of the things they told us was, you first of all, you got to come to where we are because we're not coming to your mental health website. We're not showing up at your mental health, whatever, anything. Come to where we are and make it funny and then we'll pay attention. So um, I was one of the founding partners. The other partners are Cactus Marketing which is a full-service advertising agency here in Denver. They're the creative geniuses. And Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So they were kind of our public health arm, our data arm, our evaluation arm. And the three of us have been working on this since 2007, and it's just been a hoot and also very effective. No, I like this. I really like the idea of meeting people where they are. And obviously, Vin and I are very in touch with our emotions and, and but notice I even said it kind of snarky. Like I, <laughs> I talk about living with bipolar disorder literally for a living. And I even had to say it in a, in a tone to kind of protect my manhood. So even, even I can't escape realizing that as a man, I shouldn't be talking about this and I have to, you know, kind of put a little bit of a, a spin on it. To... I was going to say this website isn't really for the two of you. We're both men and we loved this. So you did a great job. <laughs> I have already forwarded it to my father. This is wonderful. <laughs> it, it is a very cool site. I do like it a lot. So the two of you have already been on your journey of thinking of this and working it into your life and so forth. This is for, for the guys who've never, ever considered before uh, that this could actually be something that they're experiencing. And they tend to hold very uh, traditional ideas of masculinity that prevent them from really uh, understanding their experiences through this lens. So it really helps kind of um, challenge some of those traditional ideas of masculinity uh, and, and acknowledge that sometimes they get in the way of people being able to reach out for support or being able to say, uh, maybe this is beyond my ability to cope right now or or my understanding of what's happening to me. And maybe I, I can benefit from getting another opinion or actually some, some tools or medication or whatever. And so the whole program with all its compelling, outward facing, humorous media is to engage these guys and bring them into the fold. And once they get into the website, the main thing we want them to do is self-screen. So there's a screening tool right out of the first seconds of the experience on the website that has them self-assess in the privacy of their own phones or in their own homes. Should I be worried about depression, anxiety, anger, substance use, and so forth? And when they finish that 18, 20-point question screening tool, then they get customized feedback that is directly related to how they scored on that. And it kind of comes up like Pinterest. 
right? So they can kind of see different videos of other guys who are experiencing similar things. They can get self-help tips. We can connect them to resources that we've vetted for them. And it just kind of starts them on their journey. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. So Sally, a lot of the things that we've been discussing are are pretty innovative as far as reaching out to the communities and everything. What we've been doing for years just doesn't seem to be working. We need to be more innovative, I think. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think when you look at, you know, the CDC report that just came out in, in June of this year saying every single state except for Nevada, had an increase in suicide rates since 1999, and over half of our states had a 30% or more increase in suicide rate, we have to look at ourselves and say, we've got to do something different. What we're doing isn't working. And so I really encourage all of the listeners, whether you are business leaders or faith leaders or you know, people in your neighborhood and your community, uh, we got we got to come up with some innovative solutions here. The the man therapy, the the working with children, the social enterprises, as we've discussed, the, these are so innovative. And you know, a, a lot of the times in the mental health community, we're like, you know, let's have an art show, let's throw a concert, let's have a dinner and hire a speaker. And you know, dare I say, these are probably much more productive solutions. How do you come up with them? Oh. I work with really smart people. That's why <laughs> I, I, I call my, I, I say I'm, I'm a whisperer because I'm not smart enough to be a researcher and I definitely don't have enough patience to be a clinician, but I like, I like going into places that have been untapped and sitting around and listening. So half my time I'm spending in construction who would have ever thought that would be true for me, but I do because construction as an industry has very high rates of suicide. So I listen to what these predominantly men, double jeopardy men, are saying, thinking, and doing around their despair. Uh, and then I try to connect them to the, you know, the people who have the research, the, the clinical tools, the advocacy skills, the programs, um, to make it better fit for these guys. That, that's where I think my role is, is to look for the, the holes and then figure out what we have that's working that can be tailored to better fill, to better suit different populations. So I don't really think it's, you know, anything magical. That's where I get my thrill is looking for the most underserved or under-resourced areas and seeing if there's something creative that can go in there. On your, uh, on your website, it's, you're listed as an international mental health and suicide prevention impact entrepreneur. That's a mouthful for one thing. <laughs> But what, it's incredible. What is what, that? What does that mean, the impact <laughs> entrepreneur part? Well, let me start with the international piece first, because I think one of the things that we get trapped in here in the United States is that we think we got it all going on all the time. And while we're awesome, we, uh, we actually uh, are behind a lot of other countries in a lot of these areas. And so in my listening role, I do like to spend time with the Australians, the Canadians, some folks in the U.K., uh, some folks in, our, in some Asian countries where they're doing, they have a totally different framework for understanding this in, in a number of places. And we can learn so much by some of the things that they're doing. 
Um, so I do appreciate the international perspective. Uh, impact entrepreneur is kind of that social enterprise idea. I, I like to create stuff um, and I don't like to beg for money as we often have to do in nonprofit sectors. Um, I like to create stuff that makes a huge difference, as, you know, as, as far as I can get it to go, but also, you know, do things kind of in the way of an entrepreneur. As somebody who works in fundraising, I, I understand not liking to beg for money. You know, I, I, I really think it's much cleaner to be able to say, I will give you X if you give me, you know, Y, because it just works better. Uh, people in fundraising are oftentimes selling, quote unquote, nothing. And that's very difficult. But even within that framework, I mean, when you were funding these social enterprises, you had to have funding. So was it just kind of like a nice mix or marriage? Or can you speak on that a little bit? Because I, I have to imagine that you weren't completely free from fundraising. The Carson J. Spencer Foundation was definitely a nonprofit, but we did have some social entrepreneurial components. So, for example, we had a workplace suicide prevention program where we charged companies money to bring in training and consultation. So that's one example. Um, the good. difference with uh, between a charity and, and an impact entrepreneur or social entrepreneur is also a mindset change. A lot of times charities have a mindset that's kind of parental, like let me, privileged person, help you poor marginalized person solve your problems with my charity. Okay, that's a very different mindset than, you know what, you who are living in the midst of this situation are the best expert in how to solve it. So how can we empower you with the resources and tools that you already have to solve your own problem? That's a very different mindset and it's far more respectful and dignified than a lot of charity mindset which can set up for some dynamics that lead to non-creative problem solving. I'll just put it that yeah, way. Yeah. As somebody who lives with bipolar disorder and sometimes faces the stigma of living with bipolar disorder from the charities that are doing things in my name and for my own good, I tip my hat to you, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, you, you get it because it doesn't feel very good when somebody's like, listen, I know better than you what's good for you. Mm -hmm. And maybe yeah. there's some truth somewhere in there, but that's, that's not a message that's going to help me figure, to figure out how I, I get to live my own life and how I can you know, solve my own problems, which is really where we want people to be. Of course. And it also, as you said, it creates this power dynamic of who is better and who is worse or who is well and who is unwell or who is helping and who needs help. And it's it's sometimes it's hard to get out of those roles, especially since if too many people get out of those roles, the charity no longer has a reason for existing. So you have accomplished a lot, just so much. What does the future hold? What are you going to do to continue to innovate? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I'm very excited about what the Frontier has going on here. One of the things that I'm really championing that I think is um, a really cool paradigm shift is to position suicide prevention as a social justice issue and that we're in the middle of really seeing things get organized like other social movements do. And there's a role for everybody in lifting this up to be a priority and a real social justice calling. There's too many people out there that are suffering and dying alone and in despair that don't need to be if we can really kind of shift the dial here. So two initiatives that I'll talk about briefly. One is something that I'm a co-founder of because I can't seem to stop creating stuff. It's called uh, United Suicide Survivors International. And we're in startup phase, but the mission is really extraordinary and very compelling. The idea is that we're going to bring together 
all people with lived experience with suicide. So that includes attempt survivors, lost survivors, people who've lived with and through thoughts and feelings of suicide, any caregivers, wellness partners, allies, pretty much anybody who says, yes, I've been personally experienced by you know, some form of suicide or suicidal behavior, they're welcome in our tent. Um, we believe that pulling people together in solidarity helps everybody connect and feel the stronger voice in the movement. So one place is just to be a safe community where people can come together. We also have heard, you know, there's so much science right now on the power of storytelling to move hearts, change minds, change attitudes, and in our particular cause, erode stigma. So we want to help the people who are interested in sharing stories about any part of the suicide experience um, we want to help them first think through what that means for them, what that means for them now uh, in terms of their own wellness, because um, there's both potential healing as well as, you know, some challenges going back into the dark forest and reliving some difficult times. So are you ready? Um, what does it mean to be public with your story now and in the future for you and everybody else in your story? So we help walk people through a period of what I call discernment around storytelling. Then we coach them how to tell safe and effective stories around suicide, really focusing on a positive, redemptive framework, a narrative that's inspiring or challenging. And then how do we leverage those stories for systems and cultural change through like legislation or working collaboratively with the media or influencing influencers like business leaders, faith leaders, and, and community influencers. So that's, that's a pretty cool thing, and we're very excited about that. And you should be. That sounds fantastic. And Sally, you mentioned that there was a second initiative that you were working on. Can you tell us about that, please? So the second one is how do we engage workplaces uh, to help make suicide prevention a health and safety priority? So I'm working to collaboratively with the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention and uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and United Survivors to help create the nation's first set of national guidelines for workplace suicide prevention. There's no escaping the fact anymore that workplaces are impacted clearly by mental health issues. I think that's been on the table for a while. But even within the conversations of mental health, suicide is often skipped over because it's so daunting to people. Um, but people can't deny anymore that it's working age people primarily that are dying by suicide. Many of these people are working or were just recently terminated or have a family member who's working. And so workplaces can make a huge difference in this area of public health uh, approaches to suicide prevention. So we're, we're just starting that. We've been doing a summer of listening and and gathering resources and information and strategy. And again, that'll happen. That'll come out later this year. And so we want all employers to, to get on board. That sounds good. You mentioned earlier that, you know, when you were talking about the international aspect of things, are you taking leads from other countries and what they're doing? Absolutely. So when it comes to the workplace guidelines, for example, Canada has had a set of psychological safety standards, which is, encompasses suicide prevention and goes beyond. They've had those for almost a decade now. Australia also has been a huge leader in innovation around workplace suicide prevention. They have a program called Mates in Construction. Uh, that has been operating for upwards of, of 20 years, and they have return on investment studies. They have, you know, infiltrated a good chunk of the population of their whole country. Um, I mean, they're just doing remarkable work, and so they really are models for us. Um, when I look at some of the Asian countries that have had decreases in their suicide rates, hardly any work at all is being done around mental health. 
they're focused almost entirely on reducing access to lethal means. In, in some of the countries, it's pesticides. In some of the other countries, it's, it's charcoal. Reducing access to lethal means and the second strategy that they found hugely uh, successful is partnering with the media and having the media share different types of stories around suicide, less glamorizing, romanticizing, and far less talking about the means. And those two strategies together have produced some significant drops in rates. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Very. Sally, thank you again for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email TalkBack at PsychCentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.